me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. We're going to be a lot of different places in Scripture today, uh, but that's the place where we're going to start out. 1 Peter, chapter 5. I told you last week that we were going to begin a new series today based on the Gospel of Mark. We're calling it the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what Mark himself titles his Gospel. Um, and I'd like to lay some groundwork for that Gospel with us today. And then next week we will jump in with both feet as we watch and listen as Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. But the story for today starts back in the 60s, and the 60s were a wild time. And I'm not talking about the 1960s. I'm talking about the, the 60s. 60s. Uh, 60s A.D., the very first century of the Church of Jesus Christ. In Rome, Nero was emperor, and Peter, the Apostle Peter, was pastoring a growing church there in the empire's capital. We don't know when that church was first founded, the Roman church. Uh, Christianity beat the apostles to the capital city. The book of Acts tells us that on the day of Pentecost, when the crowds gathered and, and heard the apostles speaking in their own native languages, and, and Peter got up to preach in that crowd that day, there were, among the others, Luke writes, visitors from Rome, listening as Peter preached, asking the question, what must we do to be saved? Hearing Peter say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, because this promise is for you and for your children and those who are far off. And more than likely, in that crowd that day, some of those visitors from Rome were among those, were among that group of 3,000 that were added to the faith that first Pentecost Sunday. And having been in Rome for the Passover, these vis or in Jerusalem for the Passover, these visitors from Rome made their way back. We're speculating here, we don't know this for a fact, but most likely they made their way back, carrying their faith with them back to the city. And you can't be a follower of Jesus Christ and not tell other people about him. There should have been an amen there. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and not tell others about Him. So as these believers got back to Rome, they began sharing the Gospel with others and the church began to grow. And eventually, both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul would go to Rome to try to, try to shepherd that fledgling church. In that city with clear socioeconomic divisions, with, with clear lines of who was in and who was out, who was up and who was down, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that was built around ordinary and outcast people, took root, took root in Rome and grew and flourished. Nero became emperor in A.D. 54 upon the death of Claudius, his adopted father. Uh, I, I say adopted father, or I say, I say his death, it was actually an assassination, most likely carried out by, by the mother of Nero, Claudius's fourth wife, Agrippina. It's largely likely the one who gave the orders to poison her husband, because Claudius was, Claudius was 
increasingly displeased with her and was threatening to, to elevate the son of his third wife, who was younger than Nero but was his natural-born son, was threatening to elevate this child ahead of Nero to the throne of Rome, likely that's why Agrippina ordered the, the assassination of her husband. However it happened, Claudius died, and at an age of 16, Nero became the youngest person to serve as emperor of Rome up until that point in Roman history. During the early years of Nero's reign in, in Rome, his administration was moderately successful. Um, likely, that had very little to do with, with Nero himself. As a young man with a lot of power, his own life was very licentious, is extravagant and immoral. Yet, yet a lot of the decisions being made, the day-to-day -day administration of the empire and the policy decisions being made in the palace were made by Nero's mother, the Empress Agrippina, and, and his advisors, his tutor Seneca and his chief prefect Burrus. And at the outset of his reign, things ran well because he left the ruling of the empire to these others who had a firmer grip on things. But just a few years into his reign, all of that had changed. It actually started just a few months after he became emperor. Just a few months after becoming emperor, Nero began an affair with one of his wife Octavia's servants. His mother Agrippina did not approve of that, and let Nero know that what he was doing was wrong, and, and a rift began to form between mother and son. Growing distrust forced Agrippina farther and farther from the decision-making process, and by the year 59, Nero had issued an order that his mother be murdered. The influence of his advisor Seneca and Burris were waning by the day, Nero, more and more, was making decisions for himself, and Rome suffered because of it. Crime and corruption ran rampant in the city. The government was practically bankrupt, despite the fact that they kept raising taxes. The, the government was practically bankrupt because of all of Nero's excesses and extravagance. Things were not going well, yet despite all of that, Christianity was still growing in the capital. The Romans officially still considered Christianity to be an illicit form of atheism. Seems odd to think of Christians being called atheists, but they did not believe in the gods of Rome, and so the Roman officials accused them of atheism. And so the church met in secret, yet still, when they shared the gospel, others flocked to faith. Eventually from Rome, the Apostle Peter would write a letter. He would write a word of encouragement to, to believers elsewhere in the world. In particular, a part of the world we today would call Turkey. In that letter, we know as First Peter, he encouraged them to stand firm in the faith. He tells them to be alert and of sober mind because they knew their enemy the devil was on the prowl looking to devour someone. And at the end of that letter, Brett, if you'd put that scripture up for me, in the end of that letter, if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, in the final greetings, 
in that letter, we now know as First Peter, the apostle adds greetings from the church in Rome. He writes, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her... You say, hold on a second, I thought you said he was in Rome. What do you mean, Babylon? Well, in the New Testament time, especially in the parts of the empire where Christianity was illegal, Babylon was a frequent metaphor for Rome. It was Peter's way of disguising where they were at in case that letter fell into the hands. I say in case, it was almost certain to fall into the hands of Roman officials. There was no such thing as mail privacy, uh, postal privacy back then. Once you sent a letter, someone was going to read it. So so he, he calls it, not Rome, he calls them, she who is in Babylon greets you. And then he adds those last words there. And so does my son Mark. Now, even as he writes this word of encouragement to believers elsewhere in the emperor, empire, Peter himself probably did not fully understand just how bad things were about to come right there in Rome. In the year 64, a fire broke out in some shops in a crowded marketplace in a part of Rome near the hill of Palatine. And there, that part of the city was a crowded part of the city. There were a lot of shops, there were a lot of apartments, there weren't many uh, courtyards, there weren't many temples, none of the things that spread buildings out and created space. It was, it was a crowded part of the city where this fire began, and it was a windy, a cold and windy night, and, and that fire quickly spread. To this day, scholars dispute about just how great the great fire of Rome actually was. Most of the accounts we have of that fire were written well after the effect by those who were very young or weren't alive when the fire took place. The historians of that day, those who lived through that fire, most of them didn't make much mention of it. It leads some scholars to wonder if maybe this fire wasn't as big as everyone made it out to be. It was just exaggerated after the fact to make Nero look bad. But one thing everybody does agree with, the historians of the day and those writing later, it was six days before they were able to bring that fire under control. Several people lost businesses, homes, even their lives to that fire. Almost immediately the rumors began to spread. And the gossip in Rome was that Nero himself had ordered that arson and had authorized bands of looters to roam the streets of... Or to, to, that sounds odd, to roam the streets of Rome, but that's what they were doing, two different words. To, to roam the streets of Rome while they're trying to fight that fire, to get in the way of the firefighters and to keep them from putting it out. That was, that was the rumor. Now, likely, that was every bit as unfounded as most gossip is. Yet that was the word. And Nero didn't make things any better for himself. When once the fire was out and they were putting things back together, he decided that, that one particular area that had been raised by the fire would be the perfect place for his brand new golden palace and a hundred foot tall bronze statue to himself called the Colossus of Nero. Once he started building that, everybody knew for certain Nero is the one who set the blaze because he wanted a new palace. Nero, however, tried to quench those rumors. 
At first, he did it through benevolence. He was very generous, uh, especially with other people's money, in helping people to rebuild after the fire. He started opening up his palaces, opening up his courtyards to those who were left homeless by the fire. He did everything he could to try to win the approval and the favor of the Roman populace, but, but no one was fooled. And the more he tried to look good, the more people doubted his motives. And so Nero decided to take a different track. Nero began to respond to the rumors by pledging to root out and to punish those who were responsible for this arson. And unable to find out who actually did it, or maybe because he himself actually did it, depending on whose story you believe, Nero decided that as far as he and the government was concerned, it was the Christians who had set this blaze. The Roman senator and historian Tacitus was seven years old when the fire swept through Rome. So likely he didn't have a whole lot of first-hand knowledge, but, but not long afterwards, around the year 115, the Roman historian Tacitus would write in his collections of Roman history that we call the Annals of Rome. Uh, he would write in the Annals about the aftermath of this fire, and in particular, Nero's attempt to put the blame on the Christians. After writing about the things that Nero did to try to win the people's favor, Tacitus writes this, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the, the propitiations of the gods, did not banish the sin, sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Now you can tell from Tacitus' writing that he is not a Christian, right? He calls Christianity an abomination. He, call, he calls it a, a mischievous superstition. He will eventually say that Christians deserve the, the most severe punishments available because of their atheism. He wasn't a Christian. He even misspells Christ's name. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He wasn't sympathetic to the cause of Christianity. And yet he recounts the tortures that Nero inflicted on the church after the fire. He goes on to write, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. 
or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle, and was exhibiting a show in the circus, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer, or stood aloft in a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. That's how Tacitus, the non-Christian, describes the persecution of the church in Rome in the late 60s A.D. It was during those persecutions that Peter was eventually arrested in Rome. He was a leader of the church. As such, he was sentenced to crucifixion. And tradition has it that not feeling himself worthy of dying in the same way Jesus had, he requested to be crucified upside down, something that Romans were known to do when they wanted to be particularly cruel. But remember that greeting from 1 Peter chapter 5. It wasn't just Peter at work in Rome. It wasn't just she who was in Babylon who sent greetings. Peter adds those words, and so does my son Mark. At this point, we should probably get around to actually talking about the Gospel of Mark. And maybe we begin by asking the question, who was Mark? Here we probably need to add a word of caution to our account, because at least one commentator has suggested that Mark, or the Latin form Marcus, was the most common Roman name in the first century in, in Latin circles. Kind of like Mary among the Jews, Mark was the most common name for, for Roman young men. And being an extremely common name, we probably shouldn't just automatically assume that everyone named Mark is the same person, any more than we assume that every Mary in the New Testament is the same Mary. There are lots of different Marys, right? In fact, the Gospel writers go out of their way to let us know that there are different Marys. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. There's Mary of Clopas. There's Mary, the sister of Martha. There's Mary from Magdalene. There, there are all of these different Marys, and, and always we're given these little additional details so we know which Mary is which. I'd point out that we don't run into any of that with Mark. Instead, he's just simply named. Either Mark is here, or in other places, John Mark, or John who's also called Mark. It's almost as if they think we ought to know who they're talking about. As if there was one Mark. I can't prove to you that every Mark in the New Testament is the same person, but I find it somewhat likely here. We first run into Mark by name in the book of Acts. Brett, put that next one up for me. In Acts chapter 12. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, Paul has been arrested by, by King Herod. He's been thrown in. Herod has already killed uh, James. And now Peter is arrested, but it's Passover. He can't exactly execute him during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Peter is held over for execution. 
right? You remember that story? The church gathers to pray, and they're praying for Peter. And even as they are praying, God sends an angel to the to the church where where Peter is being held, and the doors burst open, the chains fall from his wrists. Wrists. The angel says, "Peter, get up. Let's go." Peter is Peter thinks he's just dreaming, right? You remember that story. But but nonetheless, Peter, assuming it's all just a dream, gets up and follows the angel out of the prison. And only once he is actually outside does he realize that this is really happening. And this is where Luke writes these words. When it had dawned on Peter that all this was real, when it had dawned on Peter, he went to the house. Here it is. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. So we know this about Mark. We know that Mark's mother was a believer. Not only was Mark's mother Mary a believer, she owned a house in Jerusalem where the early church gathered for worship and for prayer. This has led some people to speculate that Mark and Mary's home was the site of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. Others speculate that it was the same upper room where the disciples gathered in in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. There's no, no explicit evidence of that in the text itself other than the fact that we know Mary owned a home in Jerusalem where the church gathered. And Mary's son was, was John Mark. We next meet at the end of chapter 12 in the book of Acts. Um, The prophet Agabus has come from Jerusalem to Antioch and is preaching to the church there. And as he's preaching to the church in Antioch, he begins telling them about a famine that is coming. And the church in Antioch begins gathering funds to send back to Jerusalem to help those who are suffering from this famine. And once they've made the collection, they choose Barnabas and Saul, who we will later know as Paul. They choose Barnabas and Saul to carry that gift, to carry those funds to the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Saul do that. They deliver those gifts, and having completed that mission, it says when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Find out later on that Mark is a relative of Barnabas. So it's not surprising that having gone to Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem are suffering from a salmon, from a salmon, that's an entirely different problem. Uh, They're suffering from a famine in Jerusalem. When Barnabas leaves, he takes Mark under his wing and takes him back to Antioch with him. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are ordained by the church in Antioch to serve as missionaries. The Holy Spirit begins to impress on people that these two men, we want to set aside these two men as as missionaries to carry the gospel to new places. And they pray for Paul and Barnabas, and then they send them out. And the first place they go is Cyprus, the island where Barnabas was born. Barnabas was a Cypriot. And so they head first for Cyprus to share the gospel in, in Barnabas's home country. And Mark, probably because he was a relative of Barnabas from Cyprus, Mark joins them on this journey. 
Later in that chapter, though, the work in Cyprus is done. And Paul and Barnabas prepare to head to what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey today. And as they sail for, for Turkey, John, Mark, decides to go back home. He leaves their missionary journey and departs for Jerusalem. There's not a whole lot of reason given, no explanation for why he felt it was time to leave. He just didn't want to continue on with them, and he heads back for Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have finished this missionary journey. They return to Antioch, and then they begin thinking to themselves, it would be good for us to go back and visit those places where we first preached the gospel, to encourage those churches and, and, and to give them a little bit more guidance. So they prepare for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take Mark along again. But Paul, remembering how last time Mark abandoned them, does not think that is wise. The Bible tells us there was a disagreement, a dispute that arose between Barnabas and Paul and eventually became so heated that they decided they needed to go their separate ways. And so Barnabas from Cyprus and Mark, his relative, set sail for the island and Paul and Silas leave for the regions of Syria and Cilicia. From there, Mark pretty much drops out of the story. We don't hear a lot more about Mark until one of Paul's letters, a letter I just read to Ben from, 2 Timothy. Um, Paul has been arrested and, and sent to Rome for trial not once but twice. He has already been in prison once and exonerated. He left, and that's when he sent Timothy to go and serve as pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul himself went to Asia Minor, and while there, he was, we believe, trying to piece together the, the indications from Paul's writings, he was arrested a second time and sent to Rome for trial. By now it is the late 60s, and we know that the 60s were a wild time. Nero is persecuting the church. Perhaps Peter has already been executed. Maybe Peter is sitting in a cell right next to Paul, awaiting his date of death. But Paul writes a letter to Timothy, this time with a much different prospect. This time Paul fully expects that he himself is going to die. And at the end of the letter, chapter 4, the closing remarks, the closing instructions, Paul encourages Timothy to leave Ephesus and come to Rome before it is too late. He writes to Timothy and he says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him along with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Now here you might say, how do you know this is the same Mark? I have no idea if it's the same Mark or not. But I have no indication that it's a different Mark. I suspect that this is the same John Mark that we read about in the Gospels, or in the book of Acts. The same John Mark that traveled with Paul early on. The same John Mark that abandoned Paul during his first missionary journey. The same John Mark that Paul said, I want nothing to do with, has somehow become helpful to Paul in his ministry in Rome. Likely, Mark was already in Rome. 
somewhere, we don't know this from Scripture, we know this from writings about Scripture, somewhere along the line, Mark had joined with the Apostle Peter and served as Peter's interpreter. Here, Peter is in Rome. Peter, a a, a Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Jew, is in Rome trying to preach to a bunch of Latin-speaking Romans. Mark seems to have traveled along with Peter and been his interpreter not only translating his words, but explaining to the people in Rome what they meant. We know this from the writings of the early church fathers. Papias, a a, a bishop from the early church, Papias, who wrote during the middle of the second century in the mid-100s A.D. Uh, Papias' writings are later quoted by Eusebius, and Papias himself quotes someone before him. So this is Papias in 150, pointing back to something that was already being taught before he wrote it down, he writes these words, The elder said this also, Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had neither heard the Lord nor had been one of his followers, but afterwards, as I said, He had followed Peter, who used to compose his discourses with a view to the needs of his hearers, but not as though he were drawing up a connected account of the Lord's sayings. So Mark made no mistake in thus recording some things just as he remembered them. For he was careful of this one thing, to admit nothing of the things he had heard, and to make no untrue statements therein. So Papias, quoting the elder, whoever he happens to be, says this of Mark. Mark had become Peter's traveling companion, and when Peter went to Rome, Mark went right along with him. And as Peter preached, as Peter taught about Jesus, Mark was paying attention to everything that Peter said. And eventually he started collecting those things that Peter taught, those things that Peter remembered, those sayings of Jesus that Peter passed on. And then sometime after Peter's death, Late 60s A.D., when Peter died at the hands of Nero's madness, Mark said, we'd probably better write these things down so that they aren't lost forever. Around that same time, uh, there was a heresy spreading in the church by a teacher by the name of Marcion who had some serious problems with the Old Testament. Uh, He was wrong. He was really wrong really, really wrong. And so the church began to try to correct Marcion's heresies. And and there was a collection of of scriptures made around the 150s AD, about the same time that Papias would have been writing. Uh, and, And in the prologue to Mark's gospel, in this collection of writings made in response to Marcion, the editor who collected those writings together writes these things about Mark. He said, Mark, who was called Stump-Fingered, how'd you like that for a nickname? He had little hands. Mark, who was called Stump-Fingered because he had short fingers in comparison with the size of the rest of What made them record that? Mark, who was called Stump-Fingered because he had short fingers in comparison with the size of the rest of his body, was Peter's interpreter. And after the death of Peter himself, he wrote down this same gospel in the regions of Italy. Later on, at the turn of the century, Irenaeus, another early church father, 
writing around the 200s A.D., would add his testimony. Irenaeus would write after, after there, speaking of Peter and Paul, both of whom died in Rome, after their death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself also handed down to us in writing the things preached by Peter. Now I'm running out of time. I wasn't going to tell you anyway. I'm just going to put my assessment in here. I find these writings believable. Uh, And if you want to ask me later, I can point to you, I can point you to the reasons why I believe this. But the text of Mark's gospel itself definitely seems to indicate that it was written in the late 60s AD during the period of Nero's persecution by a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem who for some reason was well acquainted with both the Roman language and the Roman customs. And it definitely appears from the Gospel itself that it was written for a Latin-speaking audience, even though it was written in Greek. Because of that, from the clues in the text of the Gospel itself, I find these testimonies of the early church fathers to be convincing. So this Mark, whom Peter calls his son, is serving in Jerusalem, collecting Peter's teachings, passing them on for the next generation once Peter has been executed. What exactly is it that Mark wrote? There's a lot of debate on what, how we should understand Mark's Gospel. Some people want to treat it as if it's a history book. It really does not seem to be a history. It doesn't, it doesn't have the broad-ranging scope of most histories. It does not seem to be uh, very interested in the goings-on in the wider world. It seems to be very narrowly focused on the ministry of Jesus, in particular in Galilee and His death in Jerusalem. It doesn't appear really to be a history. Others suggest it's a biography. In fact, if you go to Facebook this week, it's, there's one introduction to Mark there now. I plan to add another from one of my favorite scholars on Mark, a man by the name of Ben Witherington III. Uh, ben Witherington III, professor, if I remember right, at Asbury, uh, makes a very strong argument that, that, uh, that Mark's gospel should be understood as a, as a bios, as a, as a Greco-Roman biography. I'm not fully convinced of that myself. I know some people like to look at it as a mystery. And in many senses, I I resonate with that assessment of Mark's Gospel. In particular, Mark's Gospel appears to be an identity mystery. The puzzle isn't who did it. The puzzle isn't even how was it done. The puzzle Mark seems to be writing about is who is Jesus? An identity mystery. We'll talk about those questions in the coming weeks. But if we read Mark's Gospel, at least by modern standards, Mark is a pretty awful mystery writer. He's really bad at writing mysteries. Uh, nowadays, if you want to find out who done it before you read the book, you've got to go to the end, right? Read the last chapter first, and you know how it all ends up, and you can puzzle it all together. From Mark doesn't even make you go to the end. He tells you right in the very opening verse of his gospel exactly who Jesus is. 
and then seeks to demonstrate it in a number of ways. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 starts this way. The beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark says, I'm writing the good news, although I struggle a little bit with that translation. I think I've mentioned this before. I find it very interesting. Uh, this really is, that, that word gospel, euangelion there, that word gospel is singular. This isn't the good news. This is the good new. But who talks about new, you know? You don't get a new paper. You don't listen to a new story. It's always news, right? It was that way in the Roman world, too. Every time, every time secular Greeks wrote about the good news, or euangelius, uh, every time they talked about, about good news, it was always plural. Yet in the New Testament, that word gospel is always singular. There is one good new. There is one gospel. And the gospel is all centered in and wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Mark writes about the good news, he's not just talking about lots of different things that happened. He's talking about one person, and in particular, one moment. I can't tell you how many times I've heard or read this week as I studied different people describe the Gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with a long introduction. Mark spends more time focused in on the last week of Jesus' life, and in particular, his crucifixion, than any of the other Gospel writers. This is the Gospel. That Jesus Christ died for us and was raised from the dead. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. And then, to make sure we understand why Jesus' death matters, He tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one in whom all the prophecies that God made to His people in the Old Testament are wrapped up and completed. And not only is Jesus the Messiah, He is God's own Son. We'll unpack the truth of that verse in the next several weeks, the next few months, as we move through Mark's Gospel together. But this is the thesis, this is the truth that He's seeking to make plain. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God.